Hello, and welcome to Breakpoints, the Society of Infectious Diseases Pharmacist Podcast. My name is Erin McCreary, and I'm a clinical assistant professor at the University of Pittsburgh School of Medicine and the Director of Infectious Diseases Improvement and Clinical Research Innovation at UPMC. Today, we are ecstatic because we are collaborating with our friends over at the Febrile Podcast. So that's right, Dr. Sarah Dong, who's the founder and host of Febrile, is joining us on Breakpoints today to discuss a topic that has confounded us all, fever of unknown origin. Dr. Dong attended medical school at the Medical University of South Carolina, or MUSC, residency at Ohio State University, we won't hold that against her, (laughs) and Nationwide Children's Hospital, and completed two chief resident years and is now serving as an adult med and PEDS ID fellow at Beth Israel Deaconess Medical Center and Boston Children's Hospital. Sarah, we are such fans of yours and your podcast, and we can't thank you enough for joining us today. Hi, Erin. Thanks so much for having me on the show. I am honored to be here. Our second guest is Dr. Gadi Hadar. Dr. Hadar is a transplant infectious diseases clinician researcher at UPMC, an assistant professor of medicine at the University of Pittsburgh, and the program director of the Transplant Infectious Diseases Fellowship Program. He is also the director of research for cell transplantation and heme malignancies, and just a genuinely amazing person that I'm lucky enough to work with. He recently wrote an incredible review of FUO in the New England Journal of Medicine with Dr. Nina Singh, and we are so excited that he's here with us today on Breakpoints to discuss this important topic. Thanks. Thanks so much, Aaron. It's always weird hearing these illustrious intros, um, <laughs> but thanks so much for having me. It's an honor to be here. And I think that the with Dr. Singh is crucial. I think this was very much a team effort to write this paper. I love that. We are all better for our mentors and I consider you one of mine. So it's an honor to have you here. Um, but let's get started. We're just going to jump right in. Um, if and again, I will put the link uh, to the PubMed ID for this review article in the episode notes. If you're looking at this on your phone, it is a fantastic review to send to learners. One of those like go-to papers that we all pull out for topic discussions, and we're going to discuss it today. So I think the only place to start is to say, what is fever of unknown origin? When was this first a thing, what have you, and how has the definition of fever of unknown origin evolved over time? Yeah, so, you know, people have been thinking about this for a long time, at least a century is when people sort of began to start wanting to define this syndrome. And a lot of definitions have been proposed since the early 1900s until now. And I mean, the the earliest one and the landmark one from the 1960s by Peter Storff and uh, Beeson was the one that I think most people are familiar with, which talks about how you have to have a temperature of 38.3 or higher for at least three weeks with no diagnosis, despite one week of inpatient investigations, which is great, except that medicine evolves over time. And and eventually, as things began to shift to outpatient, people sort of began to play with this definition a bit and began to propose these revised criteria for example, you no longer needed one week of inpatient. It could be it could be um, three weeks of inpatient or three weeks of outpatient. And you know, I've I've heard of FUO ever since I was a med student, and it was always difficult for me to really memorize either of these definitions. I always had to look back, even even as an ID fellow, I'd have to look back 
and see, all right, was it three weeks and then one week or was it three outpatient days and things like that. And, and a part of it is that I never really fully understood the rationale behind these time cutoffs. And um, why was it one week, not a week and a half, not eight days, not nine days, for example? I think there's something there that's a bit arbitrary and is just based on how we as human beings measure the flow of time. And as my thoughts about this have evolved over the past 10 plus years, I've really began to think of FEO as more of a mystery fever condition where you've done this exhaustive, reasonable analysis, and yet you still can't find exactly why the patient has a fever. And it doesn't matter if you're at day 18 or at day 21. At some point, there's an understanding that, all right, I've done a lot of investigations here. The person still has a fever, and I don't know why. And that's something that we really try to emphasize in this paper, which I think differentiates us a bit from other reviews on FUO in that I'm trying to make especially learners shy away from these dogmas of the specific durations of time that define FUO and more so approach it as um, have I done an exhaustive enough um, in set, of, in set of investigations for my patients? And if so, and it's been long enough, Yes, they now have FUO, and we can talk a bit more about that. So the other thing that people need to keep in mind is that FUO really isn't a uniform biological entity. And that's also something I really try to emphasize when I rotate with med students and house staff, especially if we're so focused on the um, algorithms and the definitions, because this isn't like... HIV infection, where it happens, and this is the natural history because this is the virus and it behaves this way. Or SARS-CoV-2, you get the infection and this is what happens to you because it's an entity and it behaves this way. FUO is sort of a man-made definition. It's us trying to understand the reason behind the final manifestation of dozens of different things. And that's why, that's among the reasons why I, I don't think we should latch on to very rigid criteria, which admittedly have also varied based on the literature. Some papers talk about two weeks, some three, et cetera. And that's why you see, we acknowledged all of this, but we never really committed to a specific duration because I think all of the above kind of applies. Yeah, I love that. And I think on the first page of this article, you kind of, narrow into that and say, for all intents and purposes, the core features of FUO are the absence of an identified cause of fever and some kind of time to rule out self-limiting fevers. And so it, it's not as anchored in this. It has to be this really precise definition, which I think is really important. My favorite part on this first page where you go through the history and the definitions is quote, not through the lens of rigid and arbitrary algorithms, but rather through a thoughtful and critical appraisal of how long the patient has been febrile and whether a thorough set of investigations has been performed, which is exactly what you just said. And so that brings me to my next question though. You have a very nice flow chart on the next page defining the minimal initial fever of unknown origin evaluation, which then rolls into a minimal FUO evaluation in a hospitalized patient. So can you walk us through what that entails, Sarah? Maybe you can start here. Yeah. Well, I love this figure because I think it's a great summary of 
you know, what we're really doing when we're seeing patients in the hospital and in clinic. And I'm going to start because we all love detailed histories and that is just so crucial, right? We have to at least answer that first step of confirm, are we actually talking about a fever? And that's, you know, the best part of our jobs is asking some of these questions, but I think getting to the nuances of what do you mean by fever? And so in the hospital, it's fine because you have some sense of, I have someone who objectively measured their temperature, but when they come into clinic, you might not have that luxury. And so you really have to drill down to how did you check your temperature? Is it, they feel warm. I checked it with a probe on their forehead and their armpit and then getting a sense of frequency and timing, like how long does your fever stick around? What time of the day does it come? And so I think in particularly in the outpatient setting, sometimes fever diaries are really useful where you tell them, I want you to write down the date and time of your fever, how high it was, how you checked it. Did you have symptoms? Did you respond to that acetaminophen that you took? And then I think from there, you're then thinking, do you or your child, or depending on who the patient is, feel unwell when they have the fever? Do you feel unwell in between your fevers? Um, and then certainly if they have symptoms, you know, do you have GI symptoms? Do you have these new mouth ulcers that you didn't used to have? All of those are sort of bundled into what we already ask, but I think being really detailed is so, so important. And I think the piece that gets missed often in sort of the hoops that they're going through before they meet an ID doc. Um, and then all the fun stuff, right? Do you eat unpasteurized things? I think asking about pica is really important. This is probably more so for kids. And then, you know, animals, ticks, insects, all the usual stuff. Have you traveled somewhere? Um, and then I'd say the last piece of history that's really important is medications, but not just what's on their med list. Are you taking something over the counter? And so you pair all of that with a really good exam. And it's, I really love how in the the figure, it points out, you're really focusing on skin and joints and lymph nodes. And that's really important. And those sort of the first things that I'm thinking about when I do the physical exam, and then of course, tailoring in particular to any symptoms that they might have. And so you confirm your fever, you then decide, is this an inpatient thing or an outpatient thing? And usually that may have already been answered for you, depending on where you see the patient. And then I think what is in this chart. And I think what most of us probably do in practice is pause or withhold any unnecessary meds, whether those are antibiotics or something else, basic labs. So CBC and finally getting that differential that somehow has never been collected in the several weeks of fever that they've had, um, chemistry, blood cultures, the usual. And then I think, you know, HIV TB testing can be on that sort of first, second tier, and then you start thinking about imaging. So echo and CT scans, and of course, all of this tailored to wherever they might have symptoms. So by the time patients reach us, I think they've generally done a lot of that, right? It's, it's more of just making sure that that has all been done, checking those boxes, and then deciding what is that sort of next step, next tier advanced component. That was excellent. Thank you for that overview. Uh, what is the advanced component then? What do we move into? I think I, I agree with Sarah. I think that usually by the time that people see us, the a lot of the basics have already been done. And then here's where you sort of have to put your very much astute Emma detective hat back on and just really dig deeply into what may have been missed. And you review the chart and all right, so the cultures have been sent. No, no antibiotics have been sent. They sent an HIV and they sent all these things. So, okay, what more can I send? And a lot of it could be a fishing expedition. 
meaning that you just send a bunch of things. Um, it's obviously discouraged. You can be at risk of finding false positives. And I definitely have made that mistake, but sometimes out of desperation at times, you don't know why the patient is having a fever. Everyone gets frustrated and you start to send things. And especially once you've exhausted the hypothesis driven stuff, that these get really tricky. I mean, if the patient tells you, oh yeah, I just spent some time in Arizona and now I'm, I've been really tired and for some reason no one picked up on that. Okay, fine, you can send, you know, Coxie, for example. Um, or if they talk to you about being out in the woods in Wisconsin or in the Midwest somewhere, and then all right, you can send some tick-borne stuff or you can send all the above at once. A lot of the times these things end up being negative and these are very challenging and you can revisit the history a lot, but a lot of the times... You could find things and go down that route. And I'll give a concrete example, which actually made it into one of the figures. But a lot of the times you really find nothing and you end up empty handed. And these cases are very difficult. And in the literature and in practice, there's discussion of, you know, biopsying things and doing a temporal artery biopsy and things like that. In the past, they even used to do X-lapse on patients with FUO. You don't really need this anymore because you have CAT scans that can tell you what's uh, inside. Um, and I think one important thing is for everyone to remember that in maybe half of these cases, you end up empty-handed and uh, you don't know why the patient's having a fever. Now, prognostically, these patients do well. I mean, they don't die. They don't have anything that's life-threatening, but it is a very frustrating thing. And I have told some FEO patients that oh, we've done all this stuff. We don't know what's happening to you. We may never know what's happening to you. So one of the things that you have in this comprehensive workup, basically for these really frustrating patients where everything is negative and you don't know what's going on is that if it's not already done, you say you can perform an FDG PET scan, which stands for fluorodeoxyglucose. What is that? And how likely is it that that's actually going to get done for your patient, depending on what institution you may work at? Yeah, let me let me start, and then I'm curious to see what Sarah's experience is too. Um, I became a believer in this because of a patient I saw, and you can actually see the imaging results of that patient in Figure Two uh, F. So, in the literature, yes, the use of PET CTs is supported, and it does improve the chance that you're going to diagnose FUO um, compared to the standard workup and compared to uh, just a regular CT scan. And it seems to do better with um, in people with either infections or cancers. Um, the patient I'm referring to was someone I saw many, 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 many years ago who really was one of the classic FUO um, patients. I mean, truly, truly classic and was having a fever well-documented and many pounds of weight loss and night sweats and all this stuff, very well documented for at least nine months. And he saw us maybe sort of six months into it and had had an extensive workup. And it took like three more months to diagnose him because I just kept revisiting the history and going back into things and what am I missing and sending elaborate things at some point. Um, the, one of the clues for him was that his transaminases were through the roof, as was his ALKFOS, and he was beginning to develop this pancytopenia, so I was convinced that it was histo, but the histo antibodies were borderline and the antigens were negative, and, and uh, we even, and we talk about this in the, in the uh, 
review, we tried an itraconazole trial on him just in case, and it didn't do anything. And then I remember one time in the lab, because this was during the research part of my fellowship, um, in the lab thinking, what could I have potentially missed? And I stumbled upon um, a report talking about he has a prosthetic metal hip. I thought, huh, well, that's interesting. Um, so I arranged for him to see us in clinic soon after. And I asked him, tell me about your hip. And he, I, had I had asked about joint pains, but he very much dismissed all of it. He said, yeah, I have, you know, pains. I sort of live with them. It's fine. But then I, you know, dug deeply and, huh, like two months or so before all this happened to him, he had a hip replacement because he had avascular necrosis from the prednisone that he'd been on for Crohn's disease, which he'd been off, you know, for years by then. And then that led to this evaluation with a PET CT that showed that the joint was lighting up. It was crazy how much it lit up, which ultimately after this very long sequence of events, which I don't want to bore people with, resulted in him undergoing surgery and they found a florid infection in there. And it ended up being a strep sanguinis PJI that had been sitting there undiagnosed and untreated for about nine months. And then with surgery and a month or whatever it was of Ceph of ceftriaxone, he was cured. And the fevers were gone, transaminases improved, weight back to baseline, et cetera. And so that's sort of my dramatic anecdote when it comes to this. And it's nice to see that the literature confirms these findings as well, though, again, not everyone is going to benefit from that. Yeah, I, I think it comes up more for inpatients that have had fevers for a while. And I feel like a lot of times like perirectal abscesses, you can sometimes pick up that patient didn't really have symptoms. I haven't been able, or I haven't gotten to the point where I did it for an outpatient setting. Um, but of course I'm pretty early on in my career, but we always want yeah. those PET scans to be helpful. <laughs> I agree. I mean, in my experience with rounding on consult services, it's something that's mentioned in these settings. Uh, mm -hmm. I will say though, just to acknowledge, especially where most of our listeners practice in the communities, it's hard to get, <laughs> it's not a resource yeah. that is you know readily available. They're quite expensive. You pretty much have to sign over your firstborn to justify the need for it. Um, so it's, I, I mean, um, Gotti's story is fantastic in explaining exactly the role of it, but it is quite challenging to navigate. Um, and in making the case that your patient really needs one. I want to finish out this algorithm, this flowchart on the second page of this paper before we move on. The last line of this flowchart says, consider informing your patient that up to 50% of cases may not have a diagnosis and advise watchful waiting. That's true. But how do you handle as attending physicians or Sarah soon to be an attending physician, <laughs> you know, not knowing 50% of the time, half the time, that's really frustrating. Yeah. I mean, I, I think it's hardest on the patients. I mean, we certainly, as the people taking care of these patients are frustrated along with them, but I think, um, you know, I feel like we meet patients that are on various sort of spectrums for FEO. You meet those that feel like nothing's wrong and they're kind of just here because someone told me to be seen. And then you meet those patients who've had fever for a long time that are at the end of their rope and completely frustrated and just so tired of navigating our insane healthcare system. And I, I usually try to start very early on and, and say that and say in either clinic or inpatient that a lot of times we don't find an answer. 
And I think that's often paired with me saying that oftentimes the longer it's been going on, the less likely it is to be an infection. This is obviously not true in everyone, but in most settings, particularly in clinic, if they're coming to you and they've had off and on fevers for months and months, there are very few infections that are on that list. And a lot of times you'll talk to a patient and realize that those really don't make sense for them. And so I think I try to explain that our role here is to think about all the possibilities that I have my like ID goggles on. And that if I can't give you an answer that I can also phone a friend that's in another subspecialty. Sometimes if we, if we find something that would potentially answer the question of why you either feel unwell or you continue to have fevers. Um, but I think the, sometimes the nice thing about FUO visits is you learn a lot about the patient in a pretty short amount of time, right? You ask them all these questions and I try to use whatever framework the patient has to structure this conversation and try to use the language or the worldview that they explain to you of like, what do they think is going on or what, what do they think triggered this? And then that can be huge for you to be able to reframe to one, answer their questions and provide the appropriate reassurance that actually might make them feel like you answered something, but, but two, I think that, you know, some patients are not going to be quite as explicit on what their actual question was when they came into the office or their spouse that's quiet, that's sitting on the chair next to them or the parent, and this is a child. And so I think this is something that obviously takes practice and, and we get used to both in processing, not having an answer, but also being able to be a resource for your patient and, and frame it in a way that at least even if you don't give them some sort of satisfying answer that you, they feel like you have helped them. And that is a lot harder than I think sometimes we think it is right. Cause patients come to you and would prefer that you give them an answer. And in a lot of these cases, it's, it's not us. And we know that pretty early on. So you have to be really, um, delicate with how, with how you talk about that with your patients. I don't know if Gabby, but you've had other thoughts about, um, talking to patients about this. No, I agree. I, th I think it's important to set expectations from day one and to just yeah. continue to set them. And, and I also think that patients like this appreciate continuity. So whenever feasible to have the same person, as in for yeah. like that case that I gave was really one of the most dramatic of my career. And I, and I remember I, I just insisted, I will be the person to see him uh, <laughs> until this is, this is resolved. Because, I mean, you also establish rapport and then it makes the... Um, frustrations of not knowing easier to handle and um and especially when you think you you had a breakthrough but then it ends up nope being a red herring mm. um maybe over time as diagnostics improve and we talk about this in the paper that maybe the field of FU will become obsolete when we the diagnostics are good enough that they're able to diagnose all the things that could potentially lead to FUO um I mean, we're definitely not there yet, even with the advances in molecular and unbiased testing, where instead of you being the astute clinician who thinks of a diagnosis and then sends a test specifically to look at that, you send a blood sample that sequences everything in an unbiased way, all the potential pathogens that could be there and then gives you an answer. Um, even with this, uh, you still have people without diagnoses and admittedly very few studies have also looked systematically and prospectively at the utility 
of unbiased molecular testing to try to diagnose these things. And I'm anxious to see if the coming decade or so will change that. Thank you both for that. I think how patient-centered both of you are is really inspiring. And I, I like everything you mentioned to think about in handling these really complex cases. I think the time has come in the podcast though to start trying to find answers. So let's start talking about what causes fever of unknown origin when you do solve these cases, so to speak. So Sarah, can you start us very broadly with what are the most common causes of FUO? And then Gadi, I'm gonna come to you because you outline causes very beautifully into four classifications throughout this review. And I want you to explain to our listeners a little bit more about why those classifications exist and we'll walk through each one of them. Yeah. I mean, I think these are the, we use the terms like categories or buckets, similar to any other sort of scenario in the hospital that's undifferentiated. Infections is obviously a big part of this. And, you know, there's different things within that are, you know, bacteria, viral, fungal, and so on. But I think the other sort of key things that we really want to make sure we consider, particularly in patients who have risk factors are malignancies. And then those who may have autoimmune or inflammatory disease. Um, so those are sort of the really, the key things, I'd say the three buckets. And then really the last one is sort of a catch-all, right? It can be medications. It can be a reaction to something else. But I think if you have those as your starting point, you're, you're in a good place. Awesome. Thank you. So then let's get into these categories. What are these four categories? And I think the first one is classic. So after you overarchingly describe them, we'll discuss what falls into classic FUO. The FUO literature has been talking about these categories for a long time. And I mean, these are well accepted and well established and it was important to honor them, but to also try to update them um, given changes in, in medical progress in the current era. But the big one and you know the FUO that used to define the era of the 1950s and 60s where people were coming in with mystery fevers and no one knew what it was. This is classic FUO. And this is in general, the version of FUO that was initially defined in 1961. And when you think of you know, a person with FUO and really no, no explanation for their fever, this is the kind of FUO patient that you think about. And in general, uh, it's been categorized into four broad categories, infections, cancers, autoimmune conditions, and all of the other stuff. Um, the lists are long, um, and it really is going to vary based on the patient that you're dealing with and what sort of country you're dealing with them. What, what I wanted to try to do here is to just make a distinction for people with, an, with HIV, because I feel like up until now, people with HIV are always lumped under immunodeficient FUO, which is appropriate if they have advanced HIV or AIDS. But if you have HIV with a normal T-cell count and you're on ART, then you should be approached as classic FUO as though you were immunocompetent because you are immunocompetent. And we really tried to make a point of this in this paper here. Um, and you know what's interesting about, about classic FUO is that my impression in reading uh, lots of papers about FUO these past many years is that there's this perception that infection isn't common anymore and that the other causes like autoimmune diseases, cancers, and 
Various other causes are more common, but when you really delve into the weeds and you look at individuals, individual papers, and I spent days, if not weeks, on PubMed, looking through tens of thousands of articles, you end up seeing that actually, no, infections are still quite common, and perhaps there might be a difference depending on the country of origin you're in, where, for example, underdeveloped areas may have may um, be more likely to report infections of causes of FUO compared to Europe and, uh, and North America, for uh, example. I like to think of it as there being four big categories. There's the classic one with its own subcategories of infection, cancer, autoimmune slash inflammatory, and other. There's nosocomial, immunodeficiency, and travel. And under, under classic, um, I know it is divided into these four categories. There's an entire laundry list of the specific etiologies under each of these categories. For example, if you, if you look at infection, you can divide this uh, further into bacterial. TB is a big one. There's Whipple's disease. There's, there's salmonella. With viral, a lot of the herpes viruses can do this, including things like mono. And I think one thing that people don't always think about are the zoonotic and mosquito-borne borne viruses as well. The fungal infections, and especially the endemic mycoses like histo and blasto and, and things like that, these are major causes of FUO. And I mean, anyone who's seen a patient with undiagnosed histo, and one of our figures actually does have a, um, some bone marrow slides from someone with undiagnosed histo. People have seen patients like this appreciate the sort of languishing, wasting, night sweats, FUO syndrome that can really be anything. And unless you think of histo, you're not going to send that test. And people need to keep in mind that the histo map is changing. And so um, the initial maps were drawn in the 50s and 60s based on the results of skin testing, you know, like the Ohio River Valley and things like that. But it really is much, much broader now. So you need to think about it, even if someone isn't in that classic, you know, board area. If you look at the CDC map, actually half of the USA is histo endemic. So just keep this in mind. Then the others will include cancer. A lot of cancers can do this, including renal cell and some others. A lot of autoimmune conditions can do this as as well. Um, and then there's so, so, so many miscellaneous causes that can include you know, drugs and um, other things, including, unfortunately, at times, factitious fevers. Um, so just, you know, people need to keep all of these things in mind when it comes to classic FUO. There's so many different ideologies of this. Um, but then there's also the non-classic FUOs, which, like we said, include nosocomial, immunodeficient, and travel. And, and, uh, and I just want to call attention to some tables because um, it, it really is important to think about the pathogens that people might get if they've traveled, be it domestically in the U.S. or outside the U.S. And um, there's a lot of zoonotic infections that can lead to these protracted fevers that unless you think about them, you'll never be able to diagnose them. And so, which is why we came up with table two and looking at the literature we really couldn't find one resource that has all of these pathogens um, and, and their vectors and their treatment and all of this stuff and where they're found and, and what seasons in one place. And um, table two goes over many of these 
zoonotic infections. For people who are interested further, I would encourage them to also look at the supplement, which is a much more expanded version of that table, which includes more details about these organisms and also includes a lot more organisms that might be a bit more uncommon, but because they're uncommon, you may not think about them. And we also have a table going through the different kinds of endemic mycoses that you, that you might encounter that's also in the supplement. So for any learners who might be out there, I would encourage you to look at that as well. Thank you so much for walking through that. And I want to put a pin in drug fever because we will come back to that at the end of, at the end of this episode, um, me being a pharmacist and all. But Sarah, can you move us into nosocomial, particularly ICU patients? What do you think about differently? What other diseases, syndromes, et cetera, needs to be on your differential, expanding upon the classic list that we just walked through when you're rounding on a patient in the ICU? Yeah. And I feel like this is our I don't know if bread and butter is the right framework to say it, but I mean, we get called about this all the time, right? Even if it's not um, said as FUO. Um, but, you know, I think the key is that one, a lot of the exotic things or zebras or, you know, items that people found by looking at the very long list on up to date probably just aren't going to make sense if that patient's been hospitalized for weeks. And, you know, this can be frustrating, right? Why does my patient still have fevers? And, this is where I think we provide a ton of value, right? Because sure, we look for infections that you probably already immediately think of, catheter-associated infections, uh, infections in the belly, including C. diff. But I think sometimes we can also raise questions about, could there be a clot or some sort of thromboembolic event that is leading to fevers? Is this a calculus cholecystitis, which I think is something that people forget about a lot in the ICU, and that definitely is seen. Um, and then certainly neurogenic fever, making sure you have another set of eyes on the medication list. And so I think this comes up probably the most, and I think it was said in the paper like this as well, in these post-surgical patients that maybe have lingered in the ICU and things aren't quite going well. Um, and I've definitely had many patients who have gotten gout, um, or perhaps there's a collection that actually isn't an abscess that isn't responding to antibiotics. It's a hematoma or new bleeding. So a lot of times the ICU ones are actually non-ID because usually the infections declare themselves a little bit, right? They grow somewhere or we find it and ICU teams and primary teams are really good at finding those. Um, so sometimes our value can also be in mentioning the non, the non-ID things that come up. Awesome. Thank you for that. Gotti, I'm going back to you now for the next category, which was immunodeficiency associated FUO. And you did a really nice job explaining and reminding us that patients with HIV that are well-controlled on ART really fall more into that classic bucket. So when we're talking immunodeficiency, we're thinking organ transplant recipients, patients with neutropenia, cell transplant recipients, and patients with AIDS. So can you talk to us? I know that's a lot and you don't have to give us the extensive list, but what weird things do we start to think about now that we see in these patients? Yeah, I think your comment of that's a lot is actually very important because people need, to, when you're approaching an immunodeficient person, you need to remember that not all immunodeficiency is created equal. There's different degrees of immunodeficiency and having an understanding of this is critical, especially with all sorts of new drugs that are coming out there that admittedly we may not have a lot of experience with. And so your approach to a leukemia patient who is in the hospital getting 
remission induction chemotherapy and has now had a fever for a month is not like your approach to, let's say, a kidney transplant recipient from 1980, who has also had a fever for a month, even though they're both immuno, immunocompromised. Um, and so, for example, I mean, if you're dealing with, um, with an organ transplant recipient who is sort of a stable, healthy outpatient, you could actually conceivably lump them into classic at times, which comes to show you that a lot of these categories are a bit arbitrary. Um, yes, they're immunodeficient, but they could have, a, you know, histoplasma, which technically is falls under classic, you know. Um, and we also need to remember that it's not just infections. Um, there's other reasons that these individuals could also have fevers. For example, allograft rejection for a transplant recipient can sometimes manifest as fever. I think patients with neutropenia and cancer, especially the high-risk ones with heme cancers, like um, a stem cell transplant recipient or someone getting chemotherapy for lymphoma, these are very unique. These patients are usually in the hospital and, um, and they're sort of this expected timeline of neutropenic fever in these individuals. A lot of the times you don't end up with a diagnosis and you put them on a broad spectrum antimicrobial in order to target some endogenous flora, which is great, except many of them, you know, after about five or so days of ostensibly appropriate antibiotics, they're still having a fever and which is going on. It's now day 10, 11, 12, 13, 14, they're still having a fever and you don't know why. You've done all the imaging and sent all the workup and it's all still negative. And these patients are frustrating to, to manage because everyone's frustrated. You are frustrated, the oncologist is, and the patient is. And I think there's a lot of temptation to use and expand antimicrobials when someone is otherwise looking stable, all with the best interest of the patient, because no one wants to miss, let's say, sepsis and, and, and have them die from that. But here, I think it's really important to engage with the oncology teams and everyone else and sort of see if we can come up with something else, or maybe not think of bacterial, think of fungal, call this, maybe it's related to their disease, maybe to drugs, which I'll know we're going to talk about in a bit. And really with the expansion and with stem cell transplant recipients, it's a similar story. We need to keep in mind that it's not just going to be infections. It's not just going to be aspergillus and things like that. It could be engraftment itself or graft-versus-host disease that lead to fevers. And these things can be very hard to tease out and to diagnose. Um, um, an example that we also deal with a lot is CAR T-cell therapy recipients. For places that do CAR T-cells, you might be familiar with the cytokine release syndrome or CRS, which is exactly what it sounds like. It's after the infusion of the CAR T cells, you get this explosion of cytokines from the CAR T cells working, but then these patients have high grade fevers to 39 or so. And, you know, for days, if not, you know, a week or two on end, despite all the antimicrobials that you throw on them, and people need to understand that this, yeah, is a fever of unknown origin. They're having a fever. You don't have a diagnostic test. There's no real way to diagnose CRS. And a lot of the times your micro ends up being negative. Um, and yeah, th these are just a lot of the nuances to think about when approaching an immunodeficient person with the understanding that the approach will need to differ based on the specific reason 
as to why you're immunocompromised. Yeah. I think from the antibiotic side, we get into that realm of spiraling empiricism pretty quickly in a lot of these patients. And we're going to talk about that, not only in relation to unknown fever, but also leukocytosis of unknown origin, which we're going to tack on to the end here. But before we get into that, I want to round out our categories with travel associated FUO. So Sarah, what are the things that are on your differential with this? Yeah. I mean, a lot of this really depends on what epidemiology, what history you get from the patient. Uh, but I think mo- most of the travel FUO lists, I think you could just put malaria, malaria, malaria for the first 10 slots. And then after that can fold in like uh, typhoidal salmonella and a couple other things. I, I have been trying to find a case of leptospirosis. I pitch it all the time, but I have yet to encounter it. But again, you know, you, you just have to take a look at where has the patient been? What is the incubation period for the infections that you'd be considering and see if you know, do some of those things overlap and make sense. And a lot of times it, you know, it doesn't matter. They traveled somewhere a couple of years ago, but, um, just something to think about. My dog just got her lepto vaccine, <laughs> 400 bucks at the vet, you know, Wow. <laughs> I know she's a pup. She's one year old. I had to get her all these vaccines. I was like, I do know what these things are. <laughs> I've never diagnosed it, but sure. I'll vaccinate my dog. Um, okay. Let's go to this leukocytosis of unknown origin, because I think this rounds out nicely with what Gotti was saying about you know, to- throwing antibiotics on these patients when we really don't have a diagnosis and the antibiotics aren't helping. And often they're stable other than their fever. And I know this is an FUO episode, but I think this is a very important related clinical situation we encounter all the time. And ID gets consulted because this patient you know, their white blood cell count's been hovering 11, 13, 12, 11, 14, 12. And then one day it's 17 and you get a consult and they're like, oh my God. And what is going on with this patient? And sometimes something is happening. And sometimes this warrants a comprehensive workup, but sometimes it's general fluctuation, so to speak. And on page 469 of this beautiful review article, you say, quote, the frequency and degree of leukocytosis were similar for patients that had infectious fevers and those with non-infectious fevers, and thus could not be used reliably to distinguish between these two conditions, end quote. So again, we see this white count creep all the time. And sometimes that means an infection is brewing. And sometimes there's absolutely nothing wrong with this patient. Um, but what we always see without a doubt, no matter what is that vanxosin get restarted, despite the fact that they may have just completed a course of vanxosin. And so how do you handle these when you guys are the ID consultant, how do you approach leukocytosis with no other anything going on. Can I just say that that should, I feel like I should take that line and make it a dot phrase to to include in future notes. You have, I mean, if you have a dot phrase, I'll, we'll take it because I feel like I try to explain this a lot. And sometimes I'm just like, I don't know how to tell you that I don't care about their white count, but then sometimes you have to care about their white count. So what's your approach? Yeah. So (laughs) I've always, you know, for me, there's three X of unknown origin diagnoses that when I see them, I just sort of breathe this sigh of, all right, what are we about to embark on? And the three are FUO, LUO, which is leukocytosis, and then NUO, which is nodule of unknown origin. And so it really, it's these three. And I just, I find it really surprising, to be honest, that there aren't these academic and erudite reviews of LUO for leukocytosis the way there are for FUO, because like you said, it is an issue. Um, There's probably some overlap with FUO as well, 
And I mean, informally, we probably all know a lot of the reasons of LUO infection and the steroid and the stress response on the body and even drugs and dress syndrome and things like that. But I've never seen anything, dis I've never seen a discussion of FUO be as fervent as a discussion of FUO that's been going on admittedly before they had a CBC, but even after they started having CBCs, I, I, I don't know why it, it does not exist, but I will say the, the reference in the paper is talking about people in the ICU where, um, where yeah, and I don't find this surprising because I do see this, where people with infectious and non-infectious fevers can have high, high, high white counts. I personally don't usually use a white count to try to differentiate infection versus not in that kind of patient, but it obviously varies. And especially in the ICU, I mean, the stuff that can lead to fevers in the ICU, like a massive brain hemorrhage and things like that, that is enough stress to lead to a, to re, to lead to a leukocytosis. Um, and I think part of the approach to these cases is to remember that everyone wants the patient's best interest. And so when there's panic on the side of the person consulting infectious disease about this number that's rising, even though the patient looks okay, I think it's our role to try to very, you know, collegially and nicely explain that everyone wants the same thing. No one wants a patient to die or to get sepsis. But I don't think the patient has sepsis because of all of these reasons. Also, look, they're fine. Um, but but I yeah. understand that it can be difficult. And it's that same argument, this reflex of you know, broadening, quote unquote, from cefepime to meropenem for someone with a persistent fever, but otherwise looks well. And I keep thinking, well, do we actually think they have uncontrolled sepsis from an ESBL producing organism? Probably not. Um, so I think these sorts of nuances need to be thought of also for LEO cases. And look at the diff, because what if the EOs are an, 12, at 90 percent? Right. Yeah. Or what if you find a very high lymphocytosis and oh my God, they have a CLL? True story at yeah. the VA 2014. So you know, it's I, so satisfying and so easy to get a differential. Like they don't even have to send a new blood tube. Usually they can call the lab and add it on. It's my favorite thing to ask for. Yeah. So Sarah, let's, what would your dot phrase say? Cause we see this not just from the ID consult perspective, but from the antimicrobial stewardship perspective too. So sometimes you're doing audit and feedback on a patient on the ward who's been totally fine, just completed. Let's say they just completed seven days of Zosin for half where we never got culture. So they were kind of stuck and and then a day later, after you stop the Zosin, they have a fever and they restart Vanxosin. So let's say they're totally fine. Nothing is wrong other than now their white count is 15. And the answer we get when we call the team to discuss why was this patient restarted on Vanxosin? Because you're reading the notes from a prospective audit and feedback standpoint, which means you're not at the bedside with the patient. So you're doing your due diligence. I understand there's something going on with this patient that I might not glean from the chart, but from my read of the chart, I cannot fathom for any reason why this patient got started on antibiotics other than I see they have a white count of 15 today. And then sure enough, you call and that's the answer you might receive from the hospitalist while their white counts 15. So what, what would your response to that be? Yeah. I mean, I think it's like, I was saying that you have to, you acknowledge, get to the source of what do we think is going on here? And then I think sometimes just like walking through the list of, I think this is likely or not 
it, it, as simple as that and saying like, well, I think it's really unlikely that they have bacteremia if their blood cultures remain negative at 24 to 48 hours. And sometimes that seems so simple, but I think sometimes people just want to hear, hear the other end and, and have someone rationalize with them. Like I'm looking at this patient with you. We're all on the same team and we want this patient to get better. Um, but now at this point we've gathered X, Y, and Z information. And I think we can make a change at this point. And so I think a lot of what we talked about today is there's like the FUO components that are fun because you're learning things, or you might think it's an infection. And then there's this whole part of FUO that is learning how to talk, like talking about fever with your patients and with the team members that you work with. And, um, uh, it all just comes back to what do they think's going on? How can you address and reassure what their questions are? Obviously it doesn't always go well and you have to, um, pick your battles, <laughs> but don't uh, we always, <laughs> yeah. yeah, no, that's great. Thank you so much. Um, Okay. I have one more question. There's no elegant segue. So I'm just going to ask my last question and, and circling back to drug fever. Um, so drug fever, this is also a conundrum. When do you guys start considering drug fever in your patient slash how, if ever, do you diagnosis diagnose it? <laughs> we recognize that this is a diagnosis of exclusion, but when does this start to come on your radar? I guess I can start. I mean, I don't have a magic number. I, it's usually like everything we've talked about, a mixture of seeing what has been done and what we might be missing. But I, I will say it's probably a couple of days. If it's someone's in the hospital, you know, if they've been there for a, a week or, or so on, there's, there's some point where you feel like you've done the initial couple tiers of the workup and you didn't find an answer, but they've been on a, say a beta lactam or something that whole time. Um, so I, I don't know that there's like a perfect thing I have in mind. I usually frame it as we've done all of these things, X, Y, and Z. Like when you're talking to the team and say, I think it might be a diagnostic maneuver for us to try to stop this medication, whether that's antibiotic or, or whatever else and say, see if that gives us an answer. Worst case is it doesn't, and you could resume the medication, but, um, sometimes even just, just saying it that way, I think lets people know that you're not just trying to get rid of everything. You're actually trying to see, can I answer the question? Um, yeah, I have the same approach. There's no real magic number at some point in the eval. I'll start thinking, huh, what if it's meds yeah. and, um, and sort of peel things. I think I'm more likely to think that in the ICU, especially when I'm already consulted and all the micro workups been, ha has been negative. Um, I think it's unfortunate that these classic triads of, you know, rash and eosinophilia and all that stuff is actually very uncommon. So uncommon that there's times I wonder why they're even taught. I feel like it misleads learners and makes them think it's only a drug fever if there's a rash and eosinophilia. Um, I will say though, just to, an anecdote, when I was a fellow, I was seeing a fresh liver transplant recipient who we had been consulted and the fever went away, but now, oh my God, it's back. And then in my mind, I'm reviewing the chart. I'm thinking, oh, this has to be sepsis or donor drive. And then I go in and the patient has this just diffuse beta-lactam rash on it. I'm like, oh my God, you're allergic to the zosin. Okay, we're stopping this and doing something else. And, it, and the fever went away. And as did the rash, and it was very satisfying. Beautiful. <laughs> 
Uh, I will say just uh, for our listeners before us we'll get into the last segment of the podcast here that when you're doing data collection at UPMC, Gotti's notes are hands down the absolute best to read. If you are digging through a chart from like 2013 and you're like, oh, what a bonus I get to walk through this thought process. It's always quite a delight. Um, but with that, the time has come to our breakpoints faithful for the I Feel Nerdy section of the podcast. So I Feel Nerdy is meant to be a safe place and a closing segment for our panelists to nerd out over their favorite ID topics, quirks, and fun facts. For today's I Feel Nerdy, I want you guys to share your craziest or coolest FUO patient. And Gotti, you have to pick a different one than your hip guy. He's telling me, no, he doesn't have a different one. While he's stewing over it. You got six other pictures in this (laughs) figure to pick from. I feel like I've learned a lot from the patients who actually, I know you said this is like an ID thing, but like that didn't have infection. The the patients who ended up having IBD or um, the Kikuchi Fujimoto syndrome, where they have the necrotizing lymphadenitis. um, I've seen that, which I when, when you get that answer from pathology, I feel like that's very satisfying. And usually they have a nodule. So they're sort of like FUO and uh, as you mentioned, nodule of unknown origin. So it's like double satisfying. Um, but I've had one, one hospitalized case where a patient had fevers for a while and had had a disseminated MAC and they did not have HIV co-infection, which we do not, I will say as a fellow in, in current times, we obviously don't see that a lot anymore. And I remember exactly where I was sitting in the fellows room. I uh, I may have started like screaming and announcing it to all my co-fellows because not only did we have an answer, it was something that, you know, we obviously don't encounter very much. Um, to me, there's really been two. There's the patient with the hip infection. And I really, I mean, this was very much a, a clinical medicine defining case for me and really changed how I viewed these cases. And it stumped, I mean, it wasn't, it stumped, the whole division, uh, dozens of physicians. This is really something that took nine plus months to diagnose. And I was so viscerally involved. Um, I mean, I remember not to go too much on a tangent, but I was so involved that um, at some point when it was difficult to convince people to operate just because of how long this had been going on. So I needed additional proof that it really was the hip. So I, if I remember, and this was so long ago, so the details escaped me, but if I remember correctly, I arranged for him to get an outpatient IR guided aspiration of the hip joint, which was pus, grew nothing, but it was pus. And I remember there was, we the hospital where a lot of our orthopedic surgeons are based does a specific test called the Sinovashore. And I don't remember the technology exactly, but it's supposed to be very specific for infections. So if you have a positive Sinovashore, it must be an infection, a PJI. But it, because of the way our hospital's system is, I, I had to go to our micro lab, grab that sample of joint pus and walk it over to McGee and hand it to the ortho office where they ran it and even be saying, oh, it's positive, which then resulted in the patient going to the OR and getting the washout. So that that really was a crazy and a satisfying case that finally, I mean, this guy's life was ruined for basically a year because of what was happening to him. And it was very gratifying to be able to, uh, to a, find out what happened and be fix it. 
But then the other case- That is amazing. I was kidding when I said you had to pick a different one. It is an amazing case. And I appreciate the additional detail on it. Well, no, I mean, the other but case- Tell us about the other one too, because- Well, amazing. that's figure 2B. I mean, there's a reason I included these is because um, they were very much- they left an impression and this one was also years ago so details might escape me but um this was someone who was from pittsburgh you know no real travel worked in air conditioning why do i remember that i don't know uh, but worked in air conditioning and um came a classic fuo cough i'm losing weight very very much fits the classic fuo syndrome that petersdorf and beeson would have examined back in the 1960s and um had some hyalur lymphadenopathy on their imaging and um i, I did end up getting a, a biopsy of their lungs which showed some non-caseating granulomas and the diagnosis at the time was sarcoidosis and all very appropriate id was not involved i think people thought that uh, i'm not criticizing anyone. I think people thought that they got the diagnosis and the patient got steroids. And then a week or so later, we're seeing him in the ICU where put a picture of his CT scan there, just ARDS and then pancytopenia. And um, long story short, um, histoplasma antigens in the blood were so high, you couldn't quantify them. So above the limit of quantification, bone marrow teeming with histoplasma yeasts, um, and BAL also just teeming with histoplasma. And then obviously this person has had histoplasmosis and for whatever reason was the kind of host where it wasn't a self-limited thing. It was the kind of histo that gave him this FUO cough, I'm having B symptoms type syndrome. And it wasn't sarcoid. And interestingly, when the pathologist went back and looked at deeper cuts of the initial slides, which had been, which had undergone fungal staining the first time, but looked at deeper cuts, he was like, oh, here's histo on these slides as well. Oh my gosh. Um, <laughs> Crazy. So yeah, that was mind blowing. And then anyway, the patient ended up getting amphobie and then intraconazole and then extubated and recovered. But that, that really was just an insane case that I will never forget. Thank you for sharing that. Both of you, those are fascinating. Um, I'm smiling because I, I trained at the university of Wisconsin. So I have a lot of respect for the endemic fungi and we jokingly but seriously, it, we see a lot of endemics in young, healthy patients. And yeah. we used to say young, healthy male gets admitted to the ICU with ARDS, start ampho, um, empirically, because it's blasto until proven otherwise, because you're hunting in Northern Wisconsin. And that was the most common diagnosis. And so I, it's just fascinating. And I appreciate y'all's insights so much. This has been an incredible episode and an incredible review of an incredible article. Um, and so with that, thank you for listening to Breakpoints, the Society of Infectious Diseases Pharmacists podcast. I have been your host for this episode, Aaron McCreary, and our featured speakers today were Dr. Sarah Dong from the Febrile podcast and Dr. Gadi Hadar. Breakpoints was created by Julianne Justo, Aaron McCreary, and Jason Pogue. And this episode was produced by Drs. Rachel Britt and Jillian Hayes. The executive producer of Breakpoints is me, Aaron McCreary. Our theme song was recorded by SIDP member Steve Smoke. And you can subscribe to Breakpoints on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for listening and helping SIDP achieve our vision of safe and effective antimicrobials, both for now and the future.